Welcome to the Social Shift Podcast. My name is Andrew and I'm your host. Today, we're talking to Dr. Britt Ray, a science storyteller, writer, and researcher. She's the author of Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction, and working on her second book, Generation Dread, about the mental health impacts of the climate and wider eco-crisis. Let's get to the conversation. There was a specific moment in my life when I realized that I wanted to be a science storyteller. And I was an undergrad at the time. I was studying biology. I was in the lab several days a week. I was, you know, inoculating fruit flies and doing, you know, basic genetic experiments and learning about evolutionary ecology and going out into the field and a variety of things that were training me up to be a a practicing biologist. And I didn't feel like my soul was really in the right place when I was in the lab. Um, And I was starting to then keep my eyes open and look for where I felt most inspired. And I noticed that it was when I was watching David Attenborough. (laughs) Because in my ecology class, sometimes on Fridays, we would watch The Secret Life of Plants. and Or is that what his series is called now? I might just be mixing it up with the other famous series. But Life in the Undergrowth and various BBC botanical documentaries that David Attenborough has hosted. And it was at the same time that I was also doing radio. I had a radio show on my campus and community radio station. And it was this, uh, what, what would I call it now? I mean, it was basically like a down tempo ambient show. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was Sunday nights for two hours. And then I just remember this moment when I realized, oh my gosh, what if I change my radio slot into a science radio slot and try to be David Attenborough? Like, how bad could it be? I mean, it'll be bad. I'll, I'll make some probably pretty terrible documentaries, but maybe it would be interesting. Maybe I could bring some science programming to the radio station. And they bought the idea, and they allowed me to run around campus interviewing various scientists, various professors from different departments. And it was through rough experimentation that I cut my teeth at creating stories out of spoken word, scientifically dense information that needed to be translated and buffed up so that it was accessible and interesting and hopefully captivating and entertaining at the same time. So that's really when it began. I would have been 19 years old at the time. And um, I really followed that passion because I became very passionate about that form of work. I loved media production and I loved learning about biology, but I did not enjoy producing new biological knowledge per se. So that's where I started to find my home. And I just eventually started pitching professional broadcasters and not doing campus radio and getting my first radio gigs doing science programming that way. So you wrote you wrote a book in 2017 called Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction. Did we learn nothing from Ian Malcolm when he said that your science, scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should? Mm, yeah, I don't think that real life science listens to science fiction nearly as much as some people like to think that it does. De-extinction is a field that encapsulates a a small group of scientists spread out around the world who are attempting to recreate extinct species using 
using advanced biotechnologies like gene editing and cloning and sometimes even more primitive technologies like backbreeding. And they're attempting to do this in order to make ecosystems become more productive again that have lost keystone species or other kinds of important species that played out significant ecological roles there and that have lost some productivity in the ecosystem since those species disappeared, usually because human activity forced them over the brink of extinction. And some of the species that are being worked on include the woolly mammoth, the passenger pigeon, historically the Tasmanian tiger, uh, the gastric brooding frog, and a few others, but it doesn't only pertain to quote unquote resurrecting species that are long gone, but it can also mean genetic rescue for species that are on the brink of disappearing. And these tools can be used to introduce valuable genetic diversity into the gene pools of species that are suffering. Also, again, because of human activity, most likely. So it's really this um, kind of rescue attempt from synthetic biologists and other bioengineers in order to try and repair and restore elements of nature that humans have not had a beneficial, mutually supportive relationship with um, and have uh, actually caused a lot of harm in. So some people talk about it as a scientific way to atone for sins. Some people talk about it as... Yeah, there, there, there's one particular scientist, Mike Archer in Australia, who's worked on both the Tasmanian tiger and the gastric rooting frog. And he brings, he's, he cites biblical verses when he talks about the merits of de-extinction. But that's unique to him and not the whole field. Many say we will learn valuable information, both about extinct species, ancient DNA, and genetic technologies in general by pursuing this work. The, the banner, as I mentioned, under which all these projects uh, fly is this idea of ecological restoration to try and really restore some of the productivity that's being lost. What was the trajectory there? Like the initial trajectory when you got into the lab that led you to, or led you from the lab, the radio show to your first book. Mm, Oh, that was, yeah, it, it totally does. And it was a very weird circumstance because, well, it wasn't weird. It was just unexpected. Basically, I had been working in radio for a few years at that point, predominantly with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in my home country of Canada. And I was focusing on science programs, but I was also simultaneously keeping my academic life alive. I did a master's at an art school, but in my thesis, I studied the involvement of artists and designers in this field, synthetic biology, synthetic biology being the field that is pushing the bioengineering in de-extinction. I've been very fascinated by the ethical and kind of societal questions that artists and designers and philosophers and anthropologists and sociologists bring into scientific discourse rather than just allowing the conversations to be led by people who have extreme power as scientists and very rarefied skills, but also uh, a limited perspective through which they're asking questions of the world. And so these interdisciplinary conversations are really what get me going and what I think we need to infuse into culture at large for a, you know, a healthier relationship to society and to democracy and to each other. And eventually along the way, I, I made a documentary about de-extinction. I was very curious because 
I could see a lot of ethical and societal problems would be maybe too strong a word at first. I was curious. I found it to be a quizzical idea, perhaps techno-optimistic and um, a little short-sighted. And, and I wanted to probe it with the perspectives of a lot of these different kinds of interdisciplinary players that I mentioned. And so I made an hour-long documentary for the radio about this, the social and ethical sides of de-extinction. And uh, that went out across the country. And then I was about to start my PhD, which is in science communication, when I got a one-line email from a publisher saying, I heard your radio documentary. I hear a book in it. How about a book deal? And I just thought, this is spam. This is someone saying, like, I'm a princess from... Nigeria and you know just like those Here's random emails you 10 get. million dollars exactly <laughs> totally but then I googled the guy's name and sure enough there was a legit publishing house behind it and it was just the most casual I don't even think it said hybrid it was literally like heard your radio doc <laughs> I heard a book in it how about a deal what in so, the world I know it literally fell into my well it did not literally it it fell into my lap figuratively. And, <laughs> and so uh, that was very exciting. And it was right at the time that I was moving to Denmark to do my PhD. And I thought, geez, okay, so now I'm going to write a book and do a PhD at the same time. And I tried to sell my supervisors on the idea that the book could be my PhD and it was not allowed. So basically, I, uh, yeah, I entered what would become a few years of burnout territory <laughs> you pulled, doing both that's quite the double duty to pull there it was intense for sure yeah so your first book is on necrofauna but you have another book coming out soon which is on eco anxiety that's a big part of it yes those feel very different Mm-hmm. what right. happened yeah that's true well I had spent the better part of 10 years looking at synthetic biology from a variety of cultural, artistic, design-based, kind of anthropological and science communication perspectives. And when you spend that long with a certain topic, sometimes you crave something new. <laughs> you know, I'd written this book about the de-extinction angle on it, and I'd finished my PhD in science communication about it, and did this master's on bio art around it, and I just had a craving. So I think that's part of the answer to refresh what I was thinking about. However, at the same time in 2017, I had a very painful awakening to how existential the climate crisis is within a near-term timescale. And by near-term, I mean over the next couple of generations of humans. And of course, I'd always appreciate it as someone who you know, focused a lot on conservation biology in my undergrad and been very pro-science. I always knew that we were in trouble and climate change is a societal priority to act on, et cetera, et cetera. We're in the sixth mass extinction. I wrote the book about de-extinction. I mean, I wrote a book. There are several books out there now on de-extinction. And um, there was a very uh, kind of unexpected epiphany aspect uh, when it became a very emotional crisis as opposed to just an intellectual crisis for me. And that happened in 2017. It was particularly provoked around conversations that my partner and I started having around trying to get pregnant and just reckoning with what all the reports were saying that kept coming out and the massive global inaction on the problem and doing the calculation of what that means 
in terms of the threat level. Also, you know, there was some meaningful storytelling that was starting to humanize climate. So we're no longer just talking about graphs and parts per million and shoving scary facts in people's faces from a scientific perspective, trying to get them to change. People had gone out and grabbed the rhetorical tools that are available to make climate change a human issue by really spelling out what this means for your day-to-day, what it means for your relationships, what it means for how you get your food, what it means for whether you can go outside without dying because the wet bulb temperature makes it impossible for your body to suffice that space. And I think absorbing various much more um, kind of visceral reports that were talking about climate change and seeing young people starting to organize and collectivize and fight for their futures as though their lives depend on it because they understood that it truly does within their own lifetimes. Um, The Sunrise Movement, for example, this is zero hour, the beginnings of what became Fridays for Future and, you know, leading up to Greta Thunberg becoming the icon that she is. All of that was coalescing around the same time. I think many of us were in this zeitgeist of feeling it in in new ways. And um, that emotional pain really sent me into a grief-stricken process of mourning the future that I believed would come, which was one of more or less, you know, a recognizable world <laughs> with challenges, but then coming to confront and face that this world that we've grown up with is not the world we can hold on to. <laughs> and um, yeah, so really that, that process was, of course, anxiety-ridden, as we know, eco-anxiety is now the kind of catch-all term that we're using to describe the psychological distress that comes with having this wake-up to seeing how existential the threat is and also finding ways to channel that energy into something useful and productive was something that I felt at a complete loss for when it was happening because... When it first entered my life, I became, you know, that kind of information-seeking, compulsive reader of every report, seeing of every documentary, following every person on Twitter, talking about this, um, looking into a variety of communities that hold different narratives around human propensity for, you know, survival through societal collapse or not, et cetera. And it was quite narrowing. And I didn't know how to productively cope with those feelings because they were new. And I knew that I was certainly getting really bothered by them because it was also freaking people out around me who were not feeling the same things and listening to me speak. And I could, I could sense the difference. I felt very alone in the feelings. And um, I needed to find out what to do with them. And so that created an opportunity to do some research about the psychological impacts of the climate crisis, see how climate scientists and activists and those on the front line of this movement have been emotionally dealing with this data and see if they have any tips and advice and strategies and resilience building um, opportunities that I could learn about. And as I started to just peel back the layer on that, I realized, oh my gosh, this is an entire world here that connects to a ton of different fields that are fascinating each in their own right. And not only am I not alone, there are a ton of people feeling this, it's growing and we have polls that are showing how it's growing. And the conversation is becoming more sophisticated around what it means to be human at this time as more and more people are starting to feel these impacts on the earth, you know, and the deep stress and inequality that it 
makes so much worse the climate crisis i mean and so yeah it, it just felt like there's not enough tools out there there's not a there's not enough go-to places i don't know what book i could pick up right now to explore this topic i should write it that's where it came from that's a great way to channel that anxiety be like there's there's not a solution here so guess it's up to me yes and the funny thing is i suppose that should have been very obvious to me that that's what i was doing but i had this aha moment like a big dummy at the end of my first draft of my book realizing this has been a coping mechanism this whole (laughs) book project it's like yeah no way wow (laughs) you're so you're such a clairvoyant (laughs) yeah in doing this particular work now in all of the research that you've done and the conversations that you've had in and around eco grief and eco anxiety Mm -hmm. has it aggravated or increased your own climate anxiety at all i think it's probably sustained it and prolonged it in some ways while also helping me deal with it and and know how to use it for positive transformation. I bet if I weren't researching this book, I would not have spent so much time in you know hundreds of conversations with people on these topics that would then fill my mind with things that had the ability to keep me up at night or read all the books or whatever it might have been. I mean, certainly it meant that a, a very significant chapter, a three-year chapter of my life has been spent thinking about horrific levels of loss, you know, absolutely soul-shaking, just complete grief and sadness about what is happening. And it is is the most profound set of emotions I've been able to feel. I mean, of course, about people in my life who I love and and death and things like that, I've felt very similar things. It's, you know, there is a pathos that I have access that this reminds me of. But to realize that, as Joanna Macy says, when your heart breaks, it becomes big enough to hold the entire world. Like that, that process of looking at this work, even though it's been incredibly painful, has made me a much deeper human being. And so, yeah, there's a cost to it. And it does um, sharpen the pain on some days. But it also, um, I mean, if you, if you speak to me at different times throughout the process, I'm sure I'd give you different answers because it has been a bit of a roller coaster. But I'm much more resolved now than I was at the beginning of this research. Much more sh- resolved. I'm sure that there's moments where it's the conversations that you've had have helped, I don't know, make not helped, but you've been far more acutely aware of it. And then there have been other times where it's served as kind of an inoculating force. Yes. To some degree. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's take a step back for just one second. Can you give me a quick broad definition? Uh, uh, eco grief, eco anxiety, um, yeah. solastalgia, environmental melancholia. Um, mm-hmm. There's a couple of these, and there's probably more out there, but those are the four that had kind of stood out to me uh, yeah. as I watched and read through some of your work. Sure. So as these emotions have risen to the surface of more people, some theorists and psychological researchers and even artists attempt to put names to it to more accurately describe what we're going through when we feel these things. And some key terms that now describe this emotional relationship to ecological disruption include eco-anxiety, which the American Psychological Association defined as the 
chronic fear of environmental doom. And Glenn Albrecht, an Australian philosopher, has, I'm paraphrasing, said that it refers to the feelings of distress we've, we sense when we witness ecological unraveling or collapse. And ecological grief refers specifically to loss and the, the grief for mourning felt when losing not only a species or a landscape, but our cultural identities that are also tied up in those things. And usually this kind of grief is a kind of disenfranchised grief because it relates predominantly to the non-human world. When we lose someone that we love, we know how to mourn them typically in a kind of socially acceptable way with funerals, for example. And you get the family and friend support gathering around you to provide you some guidance in what's usually a really baffling time. But when it comes to feeling an unbelievable amount of anguish, because we now know that more than 3 billion animals burned to death in the black, what do they call it now, the black summer of Australia's bushfires around the new year, how it, it, when that deeply affects you, who do you mourn that with? We have no rituals, you know? And so there's, um, there's actually a lot of really interesting work that's emerging from various artists and, and people who are just experimenting with what it means to come together and try and create new grief rituals for the non-human world because the rate at which we're losing things is just alarming and we need to be able to process this to move through it and not be blocked by it and not be shut down by it. And then there's something called environmental melancholia which my colleague Renee Lertzman coined with her work that really digs into what she calls the myth of apathy. So one thing that we notice a lot with the environmental crisis and climate change particularly is that we've had so many good facts. The science has been undebatable for such a very long time. We've wasted four decades on questioning the validity of it because of perverse interests that have been planted from industry. And political ideology. And, um, you know, one would say, why are we not acting? Is it because we just don't care? Is there something about climate change that humans at a fundamental level just can't care about? Maybe the way our brains are wired, like we can't grasp it. It's, it's between everything in our lives from plastic straws to national defense spending, to the way we get our food, to the way we get around to species extinctions. It's just, it's, it's smothered in our entire existence and therefore we don't know how to intervene and, and cause some form of change. Is that why we're just overwhelmed or, or, or maybe we're selfish and we don't really care about what happens beyond our lifetime. And so if we steal from future generations, hmm, we're not really going to be around to, to feel that pain or guilt. So let's just have a party while we're here. I mean, these are all things that could lead one to think that we're apathetic creatures. And Renee has called what's actually going on, the myth of apathy. It's not that we don't care. When you see someone not acting or not making the right lifestyle choices or not pushing for societal change, it's much more often that they are caught in some kind of tricky emotional situation where they feel anxious, you know, they feel the concern, the distress, they see signals of looming peril and it freaks them out. And we have unconscious defenses that emerge to try and protect us from pain. We have different ways of disavowing the truth, of going into states of denial, of splitting reality off from the way that we're living, you know, of buffering ourselves from painful experiences. So that could be capturing them in a state of inaction because you actually shut down when you have unconscious defenses. The trick being, of course, that the person isn't fully aware of it because it's unconscious 
or they could be stuck in some kind of middle ground of ambivalence in a dilemma or a double bind because all they're hearing is that fossil fuels must be eliminated. We cannot burn them anymore, but maybe they work in the fossil fuel industry, you know, in some way, how are you going to process that? It's really difficult. And it brings up feelings of guilt and shame and fear and, and a variety of others. And so again, instead of deal with that and process these difficult emotional repercussions that come with making necessary changes, again, unconscious defenses, they come up, you know, the walls prevent you from acting. And so she's done qualitative research with various people around the world to look at how people do care. It's just that their care gets smothered. Their ability to care is hindered by anxiety and ambivalence that is unprocessed. And so what we really need to do is find a way of processing this environmental melancholia, as she calls it, by talking about these feelings, by talking about the human aspect that comes with being alive at this time, which means that necessarily we feel anxious, we feel ambivalent, we feel shame, we feel guilt, we feel you know, fear and existential pressure, but we aren't yet living in a time where there's a lot of social permission around talking about these things, you know, nor just the general fluency and why it's necessary to talk about these things, to move through it and free up our capacities for action. And then lastly, solastalgia is, um, again, the Australian philosopher I mentioned, uh, Glenn Albrecht, he coined this term to refer to an environment that has changed so much that it's no longer recognizable to you. It's changed because of environmental decay, disruption, land transformation, climate change, what have you. But let's say it was a place you used to go to find solace, find comfort. You now can no longer locate that solace there because it's transformed. And there can be a deep sense of personal meaning and identity that's lost with that changing environment because the way that we are attached to place matters. And so that's what solastalgia means. And he says that we're all living in the age of solastalgia now because the earth is shifting beneath our feet. Whew. It's a lot of terminology for a crazy it, time. It is, but it, I think there's, there's so much that's important in it. I know <laughs> in my, in my initial email to you, you were the first person whose work that I had seen that, even included the term eco-anxiety mm-hmm. and having something to name something that I have felt mm-hmm. having like for the first time having almost like the that validated that there could be an anxiety associated with what I am seeing going on um, right. that I'm not caring too much or that I'm not overhyping it or anything like that that there actually is something there yeah um, felt simultaneously like there was a burden lifted that i can Mm -hmm. name this thing and also oh my god we have so much work to do still yeah Yeah. and then i think the the further naming of all of these different things that that so many are feeling and don't have the tools or resources to talk about is important even though there are now so many terms i think that speaks to possibly the the magnitude of the issue at hand but having those those tools to name something that we're feeling I think is incredibly important to then talk about it and to then work through it and to then process it yeah totally yeah they've really given us some equipment by which we can understand our moment and when we have that equipment it means we can connect with other people over it and learn how to use it and as you say without that you don't first of all you might not even be conscious of whether you're feeling distress in relation to the environment you might just be feeling like a background hum 
some kind of ambient dread, <laughs> some sense that something's wrong, you know? But a lot of people, I mean, I've heard climate scientists wake up and say, wow, this is what I've been feeling for decades. And we just didn't have a word for it. Language is technology. You know, it allows us to do things. So it's really crucial that we know how to describe what's happening within ourselves so that we can talk about it outside of ourselves. And then that allows us to generate ideas for both how to cope with it, but then also how to use it and transform it into allowing us to find our own authentic role in all of this, you know, because it doesn't need to all look like the same form of activism or fighting for climate solutions from any kind of business sustainability or scientific sense or hitting the streets with placards and protesting. All of that is great, but maybe your authentic role looks different and you find that by really bringing what pains you and all this distress that your body is showing you, you must pay attention to with what you're passionate about and what you're talented at and how you can incorporate into things that you're wanting to achieve or perhaps already doing. So all of this is, it's really important that we grieve and that we go through these feelings if we have them and that we learn how to pay attention to what our anxiety is pointing us in the direction of, which is essentially a life of greater purpose. You know, when you, can, when you can identify something that is calling out to you to act on because the problem is so overwhelming and nothing greater could be at stake because it is the world, everything you love in it, then you start to mobilize, you know, your capacities for action that feels meaningful and that you would be good at and that is authentic to you. And that can itself start to relieve some of the anxiety because then you're part of the solution. How can we build up our own coping mechanisms or our resilience to this? What are some strategies that we can implement to, I guess, be more resilient when it comes to looking at this existential crisis and saying, hey, I, I need to put one foot in front of the other and take some action? Yeah, I think we need to allow ourselves to both take action and know that action is not a cure, you know, that you're not taking action for the sake of making yourself feel better as though it's a medicine that will remove this pain because the world is in, you know, the environment, ecologically speaking, is in critical condition and this pain will be ongoing beyond your life. <laughs> we can't fix it all in a quick kind of turnaround process. We can start planting the seeds for positive things and transformations to grow and new forms of relationships to each other and other species in the world itself that's based on partnership rather than domination, which is really the shift that we need to make and to remove humans from the center as though we are you know, very special organisms in this intricate web of life because that has allowed us to be exploitative of it when we see ourselves that way. But we do see proper coping mechanisms come from taking some kind of action that feels meaningful and purposeful to you. It does help push the needle. You know, we have this conundrum of the individual versus the collective and how much does, should I really bother with these individual actions? It's just a drop in the bucket. It doesn't mean anything overall, but of course, you know, imagine a world of millions and billions of people doing those actions. They all add up and they do shift the conversation and state of the world radically. So we need to keep idealism alive amidst all of this. At the same time, we need to allow ourselves to sit in feelings that feel intolerable because they're extremely uncomfortable, like facing the anxiety, the grief, and the depression, and learning how to sit in those feelings 
rather than just try to paper over them, which is what a lot of us do. And because we're products of a neoliberal age with an overemphasis on positive psychology and self-improvement and wellness, you know, and happiness obsessions, which has cut out a huge portion of the human experience for far too long. And it just serves, it leaves people not resilient where they need to be, particularly to deal with the ecological threats that we're confronting. So I think it's, it's both and, you know, it's both doing activism and upgrading your emotional intelligence and doing that internal work that a climate aware psychotherapist focusing on people with eco-anxiety calls it emotional activism. And you have to work on yourself inside to be able to work in a resilient way outside. So you need to be able to sit in the feelings that are very dark around climate and ecological threat and then also be able to move through them because they don't stay. You don't sit there forever. It's a cycle and you move through it and sometimes you'll feel it again and then it'll dissipate and you'll feel more restored and you'll be able to take the actions that you want to. And then you'll, you'll go down again, but you, you will practice the ability to go up and down and know that you aren't getting stuck there or eaten alive by your pain for the world just because it's really, really tough out there. What are or are there changes that we can start making just in the way we go about our lives to increase our resiliency, to increase our activism, to mm. be better equipped to face this? Well, there's a variety of things. If you are not yet paying a lot of attention, there's a lot out there to inform yourself of, to read, to take in, people to be inspired by, you know, thought leaders to bring into your world that you personally select and curate because Lord knows we are saturated with people out there um, trying to lead different elements of this conversation. The field is growing. It's a lot more diverse than it was um, even just a few years ago. And find people who inspire you and hold you up. There's crucial need to connect with others over the stress it might introduce into your life. So whether that's linking up with a group like the Good Grief Network that offers online 10-step programs several times throughout the year to help people process the emotional impacts of dealing with what's happening with an eyes wide open way. And by the end of it, reinvest the energy that they lost through feeling anxious and, you know, upset or full of grief into life sustaining actions, which could be activism. It could be other things with purpose and meaning on the side of bringing about solutions. There's, I think personally, because it's been so impactful in my life, there's a need to go into the feeling, to really explore the feeling side of this and not the intellectual side of this only because the intellectual side of it is what we've had for a very, very, very long time. And we know that humans don't actually move until they feel it in their gut, in their heart, in ways that are sometimes excruciating. And we need to match the feeling with the thinking in order to get our lives reoriented sometimes in these profound ways that are the difficult but necessary changes we're, we're hoping to make as a collective. So anything you can do to help yourself feel it more is actually very helpful for the action quotient. Oh, and lastly, my newsletter. I have a newsletter on this whole area called Gen Dread. Um, you can find it at gendread.substack.com. Gendred.substack.com. It's free. It's weekly. And I interview a lot of 
you know, psychological experts and activists and philosophers and thinkers in this area looking at this more human feelings-filled part of dealing with the climate crisis and also looking at coping mechanisms that help us, you know, deal with those feelings in a way that that is relieving and reorient ourselves towards the, the solutions that we want to be a part of. My last question for you is, uh, what are you hopeful about? I'm hopeful that this conversation is becoming so much more human, you know, that we've shifted away from boring graphs and talking about parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere and the same old environmental idols being the only ones we hear this from, that the movement has become so diverse and so young and energized and that people are working from feeling the existential stakes but doing it in a resilient way, not in a, oh, I'm despairing in the corner way, which it's okay if you feel despairing sometimes. You can process that. But in a way where they're like, this is my mission. I am a survivor of the future. I'm not going to let that future come and have us in the way that it's threatening to. So it's this very brazen kind of activism that we're now seeing. And it's growing, and that is hugely hopeful. And we're also rewriting the narratives of what it means to look at a future that involves these kinds of changes without burning fossil fuels. We're re-envisioning what it means through a politics of desire rather than through a politics of loss. And that's also really hopeful because it's very much needed. And it's also very much true. The future that we're creating is not just one of like giving up your gas guzzling trucks and feeling as though something's being taken from you. It's actually creating much healthier systems for our own self-worth, you know, for our relationships with each other. And of course, just for general habitability of the planet. To learn more about Dr. Ray, head over to her website at BritRay.com. And to sign up for the GenDread newsletter, head over to GenDread.substack.com. The Social Shift Podcast is a production of Third Shift Creative. Check us out online or start a conversation by sending an email to hello at thirdshiftcreative.com. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Social Shift Podcast, and we'll see you next time.